You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have a very exciting guest on the show. I'm so excited. You'll you'll love this. We have Paula, who is a senior research officer at Phillip Island Nature Park. So welcome to the show, Paula. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Obviously, we're only here to talk about penguins, not you. Ah, no, that's a joke. That's fair. No, that's fair. <laughs> so what is a penguin's job? No, but that's actually a really interesting question. No, we'll start with what is your job? Right. So yes, like you said, I'm a senior research officer for the Phillip Island Nature Parks. So a lot of my work involves collecting the field data for our penguin research that we do. So I'm yeah, out in the field a lot. But then, of course, there's all the office stuff as well, all the playing around with the data and, and, and a lot of training of students and, you know, PhD candidates and all sorts of other things that I do as well. But it's primarily field-based. Oh, that sounds like fun. You go, you go out into the field and hug the penguins, right? That's exactly it. Yeah, I, I give them cuddles. <laughs> no, fun fact, if you ever did try to do that, you would start bleeding because penguins are highly aggressive. But they look so cute at a distance. They're, they're such little tricky ones. <laughs> and obviously for everyone, don't hunt a penguin ever. No. Or any, <laughs> any native animal. That was a terrible joke on my behalf and like I've probably misled a whole lot of people. I apologise. What do we need to know about penguins? Right, what you need to know about penguins, I think, and well, I work with specifically with little penguins, so they are the world's smallest penguin. But even though they might be small and comical, they are fierce apex predators. They are a key indicator species. So we use them, we study the penguins, but by studying the penguins, we then learn more about that whole ecosystem around them. You know, they spend 80% of their lives out in the ocean. We might see them on land, that's when we see them, but they actually are a marine species. And so by understanding the penguins more, we have to understand the marine environment better. That's very convenient. We've got a whole lot of little researchers that go out into the like environment. And so, do you do you research like about them when they're on land, or do you like go out? I don't know. Do you, do you send a robot out <laughs> swimming with them, or so? Well, we do both. Well, we don't put robots out at sea. Actually, we will be putting out a sailing drone, but that's a future project that I won't be involved in, but that's going to be really cool. But the way we do it is by, yes, studying them on land, by using a lot of technology. So we have these wonderful automated penguin monitoring systems, which go, uh, we have three of them when you put them on a major penguin pathway because penguins use the same pathways to go back to the burrows or out into the ocean every evening. And that way we can get the weights without having to handle them or anything like that, you know, hands off as much as we can. We can see when they come and go from the colony. And so from that, we can infer, all right, they're doing, you know, five-day trips when they're in incubation and they're coming back this much heavier. So we can get an idea of how far away the food is, for example. But then we also, we do biologging. So we do put you know gps and dive depth recorders on them 
So we get a bit of a 3D picture of what the penguins are doing out in the ocean, you know, how far they're traveling, how deep they're diving. And then we do a lot of diet studies as well. And so that's through blood samples for stable isotopes to get an idea of what trophic level they're feeding at. And I spend a lot of time actually collecting poo, <laughs> a lot of time collecting penguin poo. And we use that for DNA analysis and that'll tell us species specific what they've been eating, you know, the last 24 hours or so. I feel like there's a lot of things, that, <laughs> a lot of follow-up questions, right? I don't know which one to pick, but how bad does penguin poo smell? <laughs> so just imagine you only eat a fish milkshake and then that comes out. I'll let that picture? sit with you. I'll sit, <laughs> you can... Listeners that they can sit with you for a moment, I think we can all just appreciate Polo a little bit more. What do what do we not know about little penguins? What do we not know? Well, you know, that's a really good question. There, I was actually looking at reading today about how we actually haven't studied, as far as I'm aware, why penguins are generally black and white. <laughs> Or blue and white in a little penguin's case. It seems like a really obvious thing. Mm. You know, we've always said it's counter shading. You know, when they're white underneath, then, you know, predators from below can't see them. But when they're dark at the top, predators from up above can't see them. But that actually hasn't been proven. <laughs> Is that something, that's something that, oops, that you see... Like literally any marine kind of museum thing, there'll be the the little diorama that will show the penguin underneath. And look, you can't see yeah. the penguin. Well, yeah. Right. I should like probably fact check that myself, actually. I was watching, I was reading and then I was watching a YouTube video about that. Apparently no one's actually proven that. Or are they, do they have this counter shading because... To, you know, to warm themselves up when they're in the cold ocean and their back's exposed to the sun. Is that warming them up, you know? Is that what it is? Is it dark feathers are stronger and and less likely to break and if they're tumbling down rocks or whatever, is that why they're black and white? There's okay, so there's a, whole, there. there's a whole field of, like, potential questions to be asked about. In terms of the colouring. But, I mean, when it comes to, I guess, the bigger questions trying to really nail down what penguins do out in the ocean. The ocean is a big, mysterious place and there's always questions being asked. And now when conditions are changing as well, down here in southeastern Victoria or southeastern Australia in the waters, we are warming four times faster than a lot of other places, the ocean around here. And what that change means to the little penguins, and we, you know, we don't know, we're in, a, I guess, a dynamic environment at the moment and so trying to collect as much information as we can and observe these things as they happen and you know really keep our finger on the pulse that's that's going to be the big thing yeah and there's a there's a lot of really big questions in there I'm curious what it is about Phillip Island because there's a huge penguin colony there and you know there's sort of similar landscapes along the Victorian, I guess, maybe South Australian coast. Why are there more penguins at Phillip Island? Mm. So, yes, we are the largest little penguin colony. And, look, it's not by fluke, first of all. 
we do a massive amount of conservation work. So back in the 1980s, I think it was in, in 1980, it was predicted that by around about the year 2000, there actually wouldn't be any penguins left on Phillip Island. There were some massive, particularly terrestrial threats that the penguins were facing here on Phillip Island. Foxes, massive orders foxes. On the Summerless Peninsula, where the the giant penguin colony is, there was a housing estate put there. So there was massive habitat loss as well for the penguins and all the issues that people bring with them, unfortunately. You know, penguins on the road at night, cars driving around, dogs, cats, things like that. And it was through a lot of work that we have now managed to have the biggest penguin colony. So in the 80s, the state government actually implemented the buyback scheme where this housing estate was bought back by the government. So the people who lived there, who owned houses, who owned blocks there, they couldn't build any new dwellings, they couldn't do any sort of major renovations and they could only sell back to the government. And in 2010, I think that started in 1985, and in 2010 the last house was removed and that entire peninsula is now, you know, penguin zone basically. It's been transformed to penguin habitat and that has had a massive impact on boosting up those numbers. We are now fox-free as well. 2017 we were declared fox-free through our conservation work, through our pest animal team. A massive, massive achievement, you know, we knew that one fox could kill 30 plus penguins in an evening because, you know, they cache, they surplus kill. So removing all the foxes has had a massive impact. And then in terms of, I guess, the marine space here, how I was saying southeastern Australia is warming at such a rapid rate, we're in Bass Strait and our penguins mainly hang around in Bass Strait. They go into Port Phillip Bay as well. But Bass Strait is actually quite shallow. So we have this warming and strengthening East Australian current, but those really warm waters haven't actually massively encroached into Bass Strait yet. So we've had a little bit of warming here, but not quite as much as what you're seeing off, you know, the coast of New South Wales and extending down to the coast of Tassie as well. So it's a whole lot of factors, including just like a lot of work. A lot of work, a lot of work. We wouldn't have the penguins anymore if it wasn't for all that work. It's kind of a terrifying thought. It is, it is. We actually used to have 10 different little penguin colonies around Phillip Island, so they were all lost and now we've got the big Sutherland's Peninsula. It's a terrifying thought, but also I think also really heartwarming to see what can happen with the right support. The the nature parks, you know, before COVID hit, we were self-funded, so it was via people visiting the Penguin Parade or any of the of our parks, you know, the Koala Conservation Reserve or Churchill Island, and that helped pay for the conservation work that we do. I think it's a really wonderful story of success and, and how you can use tourism in such a wonderful way to protect what we love. Very kind of targeted, very yeah. effective. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you said you talk to people as part of your job. Are there any, but I mean, obviously that was a very <laughs> poor question. You talk specifically to, you know, people who are learning and students, etc. Have you been asked like a particularly entertaining or favourite question? Oh, my goodness me, that's a good one. 
I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I mean, there's lots and lots of random questions. You're working with penguins, yeah? <laughs> there are lots of random questions. But there aren't any silly ones. So everyone can ask me whatever they like, and I don't judge. <laughs> no, nothing's standing out, unfortunately. That's okay. It's always worth asking, just in yeah. case like a little, a little kid asks you a fantastic question. Have you seen any other types, breeds of penguins in the wild? So we occasionally do get different penguins washing up on the beaches. So fjordlands and rock copper penguins do wash up and they are usually in a bit of a bad state. And so they go into our wildlife clinic and get rehabilitated and re-released. Personally, I have also gone and seen other penguins in the wild and every time I have, I've cried <laughs> of joy. I saw yellow-eyed penguins in New Zealand and they're amazing. You know, they're an endangered species that are really in strife and just really special when you get to see one in the wild. African penguins as well, another endangered species, went to boulders in South Africa and that was amazing. You know, these penguins are out during the day. Such a treat when you see penguins out mm. during the day because little penguins mm. are <laughs> nocturnal on land. And yeah, that was an amazing experience as well. Yeah, there's just something so enticing about a penguin. Yeah, you know, you try to nail it down. What is it? You know, they're such, I mean, they are comical creatures. Mm. They are, I do call them the clowns of the animal kingdom, let's be honest. But they're bloody tough, yeah? <laughs> oh, you, you see, see some of, yeah, well, you see the, 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 Penguins that are doing this belly dives down the rocks or something, oh, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, despite their appearances, they are these endurance athletes, yeah. <laughs> they swim faster than us. And trust yeah. me, when you have to try to chase down and catch a penguin, they actually can run pretty fast too. <laughs> but when you see the footage of them underwater, they're just so elegant. Yeah, well, they're made for the water. Yeah, they're little tor torpedoes made for the marine environment because that's that's where they spend most of their lives. But we can't just talk about penguins. So what does an average day at work look like for you? An average day, you know, <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really think I have an average day, to be honest. It depends on the time of the year. So during the spring and the summer, that's when we are in breeding mode on Phillip Island. That's when our penguins are breeding. And that's when I spend most of my time out in the field. So... Usually before I head out, I will have a quick check through some databases. So every night at the Penguin Parade, the rangers actually count how many penguins come across during the parade. And I like to check that each morning so I can get an idea of what I might find in the colony. I also check one of the wave bridges as well to see what weights they were coming in at. I just kind of psych myself up. All right, <laughs> what's it going to be like when I go out there? And then usually I send the kids off to school and then I go out to the field we do some basic borough monitoring, so that is identifying, I guess, which penguins in which, is in which borough. We microchip all of our penguins in our study sites, but less than 5% of the colonies microchip. So it's only a small proportion that, that get microchipped, but all the ones that we work with are. So we can see who's with who and how they change and what stage of the breeding season they're at. And if they have chicks, so, you know, weigh them and, and do morphometric measurements to see how those chicks are going. So that's kind of our baseline monitoring. And then depending on what I see out in the field, I might have to quickly go and you know, 
collect some cardboard to put in the entrance to collect poo the next day or, you know, get the blood sampling kit ready or anything like that. And, and yeah, I might have a PhD candidate out with me that I'm training. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, of course, it's cleaning up. There's lots of cleaning up. <laughs> when you're handling penguins, they're getting covered in penguin poo. Then downloading our scanners and doing some data work, data checks and making sure all that's accurate. And yeah, this time of year, that's probably a basic day yeah are there any diseases a person can catch from a penguin look I haven't seen anyone that I've worked with and myself I haven't seen anyone I've gotten sick from them before but certainly it's something you keep an eye out particularly respiratory diseases with birds and now with there's a giant highly pathogenic avian avian influenza outbreak particularly in the northern hemisphere and we are keeping an eye out for that if that comes to Australia. We've never had highly pathogenic avian influenza here in Australia. We usually have the low pathogenic that comes and doesn't cause as much of an issue. So we are on high alert for that. And if that does come into Australia and come to the penguin colony, then that is certainly something that humans are susceptible to and it's something like a 40 to 50 percent mortality rate for humans so i'd rather not get it but overall you know they're not too not too much of an issue that we've had yet in terms of diseases and obviously we we are, are pretty careful yeah we practice good hygiene practices with the birds yeah because there's always like normal bad things you can get from handling animal poo as well yeah and so. you're in the ground and and you know there's feral cats around and it used to be a housing estate so i'm sure there were pet cats and there's toxo no doubt in the soil so you just have to be careful all, all the things that you know you don't have to worry about if you've got a desk job <laughs> exactly yeah that's right a bit of added adrenaline to my day it's all right yeah <laughs> sounds like it it a job with quite a, a range of different possibilities throughout the day. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's just, you know, just a sprinkling of what I do. You know, sometimes I am part of a team that runs, you know, oil spool training workshops for, you know, state government and <laughs> things like that. So there's lots of different things I do. Sometimes I have a film crew out in the field with me, you know, <laughs> Who knows what, what's going to happen? <laughs> yep. They're probably to focus in on the very cute little penguins. Yep. It's understandable. Very understandable. <laughs> what's your favourite part of your job? My favourite part of my job, you know, it's kind of morphing. I really I love research. I really love that I contribute to answering these questions that then have these amazing conservation outcomes and the fact that I – so I've been working with the penguins for the better part of 15 years and so I see, you know, the work that I do and then the conservation outcomes from that and that's really, really rewarding, really rewarding. <laughs> but also I'm really starting to enjoy – talking about the work that I do, sharing the knowledge that I have. I go every year to some other different little penguin colonies around Tasmania and I share some of that knowledge with different volunteer groups or with the Bishno Penguin Tours, another penguin company down, tourism company down in, in Tasmania. 
and I love sharing that knowledge and then getting feedback. You know, we implemented some of your ideas and we're already seeing these positive outcomes and that is just so heartwarming. <laughs> it's what I do. It's what I, why I do what I do to help, you know, not only conserve little penguins but conserve the, the environment around them. Yep, the whole ecosystem. Yeah. And that's such a, I don't want to say lucky, but is a, a rare opportunity to be in a position where you're doing research in the organisation where they can actually implement it and you've got that kind of tight loop to actually yeah. close thing in. That's quite, that's novel. It, it's really interesting that it is quite the rare thing because it works so well. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> it works so well and... Yeah, you think it should be everywhere, yeah? Having that, like I said, that closed loop. Yeah, I, you know, in the same coffee room, like you've got people talking and that sort of thing, yeah. Yeah. Huge difference. How did you get to where you are now? What was your, like, what was the plan when, say, you were in high school versus what actually (laughs) happened? You know, in high school, I never, I never had this, drive to do science or research I never had even the understanding that science was something I could do I never certainly never had the role model I think the closest role model as a kid would <laughs> showing my age would have probably been Ranger Stacy Ranger Stacy on Agro's Cartoon Connection yeah yeah mm-hmm. are you in that era yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how amazing was she <laughs> I actually spent most of my high school doing drama and theatre and it came to like the final few days where you had to put in like uni preferences I had no idea I had no idea what I wanted to do I had a meeting with the careers advisor and she was like right what are you going to put down I don't know I have no idea what I want to do with my life maybe you know I really liked wildlife I really liked animals maybe I'll be a vet nurse and she's like well have you thought about science what do I think about science? I like animals. <laughs> like, I don't know. What are you talking? Right? I hadn't even made that connection. <laughs> and she was like, well, how about zoology? I'm like, what is that? <laughs> like, is that a thing? <laughs> That's how much I didn't know. And and so I looked into it and I went, yeah, okay, cool. That sounds pretty good. I'll give it a crack. No idea what I'm doing. And I got into science at Monash and I just fell in love. <laughs> I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the biological sciences, but then I loved that you could do a little bit of everything. So I also did some astronomy and astrophysics, and I loved the astronomy part of it. I learned very quickly that physics is not a forte of mine. <laughs> but if you're a woman or non-binary person listening then and you're interested in physics, do it because it needs more representation. <laughs> very heavily male-dominated. So if you've got a knack for it, do it. And then I did like some arts as well. So I did sociology because humans are just like weird big animals, yeah. <laughs> so, so I did. I could actually get a minor in sociology if I wanted to because I did so much of that. But, yeah, so then I concentrated on biological sciences and in zoology. Third year, I completely nerded out on the zoology aspect and I loved it. I loved it so much. Um in third year at Monash, you get the option to go to Heron Island to run a little research project, and that was amazing. I think that really sparked my love of research, just that whole from asking the question to investigating it. I just loved it so much. 
so yeah, I really fell in love with research. And then it came to my honours year. And, you know, they say, don't choose what you're going to do your honours on, on the species, choose it on the field that you're really interested in. And then I saw there was honours in penguins. And honestly, I chose to do that because penguins. And as it turns out, they are, they exceeded my expectation for the most fascinating species and just that whole the whole greater field around them that it's not just the penguins it's a whole ecosystem that you're working with so fascinating I fell in love with them but then after my honesty I really wanted to I guess experience the real world I'd been in education my entire life from primary school high school uni on to get out there I spent a year doing like wildlife education stuff and then a job came up with the penguins so penguins went <laughs> Got that job. And I've been here ever since. I've always wanted to go back and do my PhD eventually. But then, you know, I kind of sat down as some people do and thought, what's more important, you know, this PhD or having a family? And I went the family route. But now the kids are getting a bit older. So now I'm playing around with options of, you know, PhD for prior publication potentially in the next 10 years or something having those discussions with work. So I kind of feel like I'm starting a new journey now that the, the kids are a bit older and we'll see where it goes. And you are never too old to actually do a PhD. That's right, except to stop employment to do a PhD and raise a family, very, very difficult and mad props to those that do. <laughs> That's a very different thing, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But, you know, if you can investigate ways to work and do something like by prior publication that would be amazing so that's yeah different avenues I'm looking at so do you publish your research no so well I collect the data that then gets published but no I don't at the moment my position doesn't write papers which is something that I'm working towards it's something that is now within I've got a new re- new title now that's within that role as trying to yeah work that into my my current role. I certainly have a lot of questions that I'd love to answer. We have a lot of data that can be used for it as well. So that's the direction that I'm heading to now. There are some papers that I've, you know, I'm named in, but not ones that I've written myself. Fantastic. I feel like your careers counsellor deserves a high five. Yeah, right. (laughs) Mrs. Carnal Smart. (laughs) I still remember. Yeah, because I would have had no idea if it wasn't for her. Like, yeah, that that's impressive for her to be able to see the interest and be able to see different ways that you could achieve that. Especially since, yeah, because science never, it was never on my cards. You know, like I said, I was a big drama nerd. I wasn't a science nerd. And for her to see that potential was, yeah, pretty amazing. Do you think you use any of the drama now? You know, I think I'm re-sparking that love <laughs> now as I do the last, I guess, year especially. I've been doing a lot more media stuff, bits and pieces, and it is kind of now combining that, my knowledge of conservation, of penguins, and now combining that to communicate that. I guess I'm kind of trying to meld the two perhaps now. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing, but I think I think that, that might be a bit of what's going on. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's sort of an important thing for people to like 
realize is just because someone's got like a cool job and a cool job title doesn't mean that they're finished. Like you keep, we keep developing and, you know, learning and creating new things. So Absolutely. And I think it's really important to understand the different barriers, first of all, that people face and different life decisions they make and that just because perhaps that they're not at a certain level or other people are, first of all, doesn't mean that they don't have a massive amount of knowledge and a massive understanding in that field. But, yeah, that also they, they still have a huge potential. Yeah. Is there any advice you wish you could have given young Paula? <laughs> yeah, I guess not to hold back. I think I spent a lot of my life holding back and perhaps that's also changing now that I've, as you get older, you tend to give zero stuffs (laughs) (laughs) and really just lean into what you love to do and not let, I guess, other people sway you as much. I wish I'd done that earlier, but look, I am, I'm pretty proud of young Paula. She did a lot. I went to Costa Rica and did volunteer work there. I'd advise anyone who wants to get into conservation work or, or research or anything like that, particularly with wildlife, to do a lot of volunteering, you know, see what it's like and, and see what you like and go for it. Yeah, don't let the barriers, don't let a no stop you. Figure out a way around. There's always a workaround. <laughs> it might take you longer, but you work it out. <laughs> That's particularly important in, I guess, the high-demand roles like anything working with charismatic fauna yeah absolutely and it's really impressive there are quite a few particularly women that I work with that are working elsewhere within the organization that are just so tenacious that are just so keen to get into the research and they will take any opportunity and just keep on trying and they're just so amazing and you know they'll end up where they want to be because they just keep on giving it a go. Is there any other advice you'd give to basically the people who want your job? <laughs> I'm holding on to it with both hands. Any other advice that I'd give? It's really just getting that experience. Experience is amazing, especially when you are working in a job or you want to go into a job that is heavily field-based, it's a hands-on experience. It might not be with the species, for example, that perhaps you want to work with or whatever, but any type of that hands-on experience and working, if you can, with data sets and things like that is so important. You know, the degrees are one thing, they're wonderful, but actually having that experience is it's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, actually knowing how to use some of the equipment and what it takes to organise a field, expedition, all that sort of mm. stuff. You know, and it's it's one thing, yeah, to know the theory behind it, but can you pull a penguin out of a natural burrow and handle it and put it into a bag without getting without hurting yourself or hurting the penguin? <laughs> they require some skills. <laughs> I can just imagine a uni, uni room that's full of, like, little robotic penguins for training people. <laughs> What a thought. Now, obviously, you would interact with the public and... Not I'm a very lot, actually. Con- you know, I don't actually interact a lot with the public. I'm 99% of the time, it's just me and the penguins. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. 
in that case, let's not. I'm sure you talk to the public, like you know, at parties or <laughs> school functions, etc. Like yeah. normal people do. I'm curious if there's any myths or misconceptions. I'm guessing there's actually a lot that people have about whether it's your job or penguins or Phillip Island nature parks that you would mm. like to take this opportunity to, to do a bit of myth busting. Mm. Well, yes, absolutely. When it comes to the penguins, you, everyone thinks they're cute and cuddly instead of understanding that they're fierce apex predators, that they are so vital in the ecosystem and how that they are essentially, you know, canary in the coal mines. They are important to study, to learn, to understand the environment around them. So they're not just cute and cuddly. They're not cute and cuddly at all, actually, but <laughs> they are actually these amazing, tenacious animals that I want to say tall. They're not a tool, of course, but they're a vital species to understand, to learn, to understand the greater world around them when it comes to my job I think a lot of people don't realize what I actually do it wasn't until I did a bit of the tv stuff I was on you know the meet the penguins documentary on the ABC that on ABC iview right now I think (laughs) I don't think until friends saw that I got a lot of messages people going what is your job no idea that's what you do so yeah that's that's a good way to see what I do if you watch that <laughs> what did people think you do I I don't know I don't know I don't think people understand when you say you work with penguins yes you work with penguins you you have to remove them from the burrows and and do stuff with them <laughs> that's how you work with penguins I don't know and I guess if we come to myths busting for Phillip Island Nature Parks, I think a lot of people don't realise that we're a conservation organisation. I think a lot of people you know, see the Penguin Parade, see our other parks and think that we're just a tourism organisation. They don't realise that you know, just by visiting, you're helping our con- conservation work that we do. And that, yeah, we're just, we actually have a massive impact. <laughs> We are, you know, up there with world leaders in little penguin research. We are the world's largest little penguin colony, not by fluke, but through the hard work that we do. And I can sort of see if you weren't really paying attention when you visited and you weren't actually reading the science and stuff, you you might be able to get that idea that it's just about tourism. But, Hmm. yeah, there's also there's amazing communication done as well. There is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just, and we're not just penguins. You know, we a few years ago released Eastern Bard Bandicoots on Phillip Island, on Churchill Island, you know, obviously with all the partners behind that, but removed them off the extinction list. Hello, that's pretty huge. We, <laughs> we, um, Dr. Rebecca McIntosh, she researches the Aussie fur seals here. We've got the largest Aussie fur seal colony off Phillip Island. She does amazing work with the research there, drone work there, you know, hands-off um, drone work, doing population counts and things like that. Great citizen science project that she has created called Seal Spotter. So if you love your citizen science, jump onto Seal Spotter where you get to count seals and point out entanglements and things like that. So there's a lot that we do. It's not just penguins. It's not just penguins. I mean, you know, I'm biased. I think penguins are the best, but... The other species have their place too. <laughs> That's a little bit cheeky. <laughs> okay. So there was just the myth about what on earth you do for work, mm. which 
clearly there was some confusion. I, I suspect most people don't actually know what their friends and family do as a job. I Yeah. I don't think yeah. you're alone. Yeah, that, that's true, yeah. <laughs> Penguins are obviously wonderful apex predators and not cute and cuddly. Yeah, there's some great myths to have you got a shout out for us? A virtual high five for someone or someone's who you think is doing an awesome job and just deserves lots of virtual high fives. Oh, look, I already mentioned her. I'm going to mention Beck again, Dr. Rebecca McIntosh. I love her work. I think, you know, she's such a, she's such a human, first of all, such a relatable human, <laughs> a mum juggling it all. And her work is just so amazing that she does. She's, you know, created this bins on boats project as well to reduce the amount of entanglement material that, that goes out into the ocean that things can get entangled in, particularly seals, you know, this seal spotter program. Um, the fact that, yeah, she flies drones over the seal colony now to get photos rather than, you know, having to land and cause that huge amount of disturbance in these colonies. She does some really exciting stuff and I love her work and I love her. <laughs> so I want to give her a big shout out. Fantastic. Lots of high fives to Dr. Rebecca. Sounds like an absolute legend. She is. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Paula. This has been delightful. We're all stoked about penguins and, you know, everything's pretty good. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee. Head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link. Buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend. <laughs>